If you haven't been here, we're in the middle of the Apostles' Creed series called I Believe. And so another week of talking about Jesus today, we'll talk about the ascension of Jesus and what it means that Jesus is our King. And so for that, we turn to the very end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, starting in verse 50. Hear the word of the Lord. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for today, and we're thankful um, that your presence is here in this place. I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, friends, we're several weeks into this series. I said, just a little bit of review. Very early on, we started with why, why would we talk about this creed? Why is it important? Why spend an entire summer talking about the Apostles' Creed? And I gave a lot of uh, things for us to remember, but, but three of them that I think are most important, and I just wanna review that. First, we talk about the creeds, the historic creeds, and particularly the Apostles' Creed, because it is these creeds that anchor us to our non-negotiable truth truth. They don't take all of Christianity in these creeds, but they hold us to things that we must believe. If we step out of the boundaries of the Apostles' Creed and begin to negotiate these statements of faith, we start to believe in something that's completely different. That's not what it's intended to be. So it anchors us to our faith, to these non-negotiable truths. It teaches us, right? So this series, I hope, is equipping us and teaching us. The Apostles' Creed would be used probably as the framework for the first catechism or Christian education in the early church so that believers might know what they're professing to. Catechism literally means echo. It echoes to us what we believe so that we might remember it. It echoes when we say it together, when we gather together and worship. And thirdly, it directs our worship. It gives us a direction, a position so that we might know what are we professing to when we gather even 2000 years later. And so that's why the creed is important and why we're talking about it. And in specific, the creed is often accused of being purely didactic or just teaching statements, um, but that's not all the creed is. As a matter of fact, the structure of the creed itself, spending um, five, six lines on one person tells us that the focus of the creed is on Jesus Christ. And so that's why when we talk about God the Father in one week and then we quickly spend the next two months on Jesus, that's what is happening because God coming in Christ is the culmination of salvation and what we believe about Jesus from incarnation, even before that from creation, but specifically incarnation through his return, that dictates our faith in many different ways. And so let's give you the context. And the section about Jesus, is I believe in Jesus, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
crucified, dead, and buried, and the bonus, descended to the dead. We talked about that last week. If you didn't hear that, I'm sorry you missed it, but you can go back and check out that message. Why do we say descended to the dead sometimes? So we addressed that last week. Then the third day he rose from the dead, and today he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Next week, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That is Jesus. That's the whole section about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And the whole structure of the creed points to this person. And so we talked about a few weeks ago that that whole section is what it means to confess, profess that Jesus is Lord. And I showed you these arrows, right? This is, we, we get just parts of this sometimes in the church. And we as a church have professed Jesus is Lord is about everything from God coming in the flesh in the incarnation to God giving himself on the cross to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the ascension to the right hand of the father and Jesus's return again. That's what it means to profess that Jesus is Lord. And so all of these weeks are important. Sometimes for simplicity, we boil it down to just parts of these truths. But when we get that, we don't get the fullness and the power of what the gospel message is and what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and in his current kingship. Particularly why I want to, why I'm excited about today is because I believe that this is one of the doctrines that is most impoverished in the church. We know what Jesus has done, but do we know what Jesus is doing right now? What does it mean that he's king? What does it mean that he sits at the right hand of the father? What does this particularly mean to us? There's a story of a young man riding with his dad who is a pastor and the dad is driving. I think they're on vacation and they're headed towards this beautiful sunset and the son has the opportunity of being the navigator. Now, listen, we don't know what that is anymore, but there was a day where you needed a little help in the driver passenger side to look at maps, right? Those are things that are on paper that show you where to go, right? Hey, I think we need to head south. Now we're like, south, is it right or left, right? What does that mean? And there was a day where that was a great privilege. And so the son is riding and is serving dad as navigator, helping him to where they're gonna go. And as they head into this beautiful sunset, the dad comments almost to himself, wow, God really did it this time. He painted such a beautiful picture for us to see. And the son looks at him without missing a beat and says, he must have painted that with his left hand. Dad's puzzled. What makes you say that? Well, dad, at church, we're learning about the creed and how Jesus went to the father and sat on his right hand. So God must have used his left hand for this painting. It's funny, but it opens us up to some of the confusion about what we even mean about Jesus ascending to the Father, about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean? It's really a peculiar idea. And we actually see it happen in ways in Hollywood movies about Jesus. Those are some of the weirdest scenes that we've ever seen. And think of any movies you've seen. I've gone, I'll go all the way back to the 1965 greatest story ever told and check out this picture of the ascension. Isn't that creepy? Like it's some kind of Caucasian Jesus that needs a haircut really badly and he's just floating in the sky, right? The next picture shows him kind of just elevating up. It's a weird scene. And that's a long time ago, but even the last couple of decades, Hollywood doesn't know what to do with this scene because we don't know what to do with it. 
That's why we read the Luke in text, because when we read Luke, he blesses them and then poof, he disappears. And we're like, what is happening? What does this mean? Well, here's how I wanna answer that today. I wanna talk about what it meant for Jesus to ascend, what it means currently for Jesus to sit at the right hand of God the Father and thereby talk about what it means for us. And so we're gonna talk about three, the three Ps of ascension. That's a typical pastor thing so that you can remember these three Ps. I got these from Dr. Steve Siemens, a great framework for the ascension. He talks about presence, power, and posture. By the end of this, I want you to know a king who is present, who is powerful, and who is leaning into creation even currently. So first, let's look at presence. The ascension brings Jesus back fully into the presence of the triune God. Jesus's presence with God brings more fully his presence with us. That sounds paradoxical, but in Jesus returning to the Father, it actually brings his presence back to a place where he can be with us always and everywhere. He took on flesh and limited aspects of his power and presence in the world in the incarnation. So the first piece of the ascension that is important, it's basic, it's answering the question of where is he and what does it mean for us? To know that he's back in the presence of God and all of the implications that that might have for God's people. Hebrews puts it this way. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus in the ascension is returning to his glory. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself, that he entered down in, he came all the way down, taking on flesh, and now he returns from that which he came from. And shockingly, Jesus says in John's gospel, it's better for you if I go. It's such a weird thing. I've often wrestled with that. How many of us would choose the current understanding of the Christian discipleship over being a disciple actually walking with the tangible person of Jesus? Not many of us, right? If I were to ask you that question, would you rather be walking with Jesus around and to see him or to live our faith in the way that we are now, not many of us would choose the current way of living. We think it would be easier if we can see him and walk with him. But look what he says in John 16. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. We're not gonna get too far into this because the Holy Spirit's coming up in a few weeks. But what he is saying, it is better for me to go because when I go, then I actually will be with you all everywhere. That's the promise that Christ has for us. Presence everywhere. So now in prayer, when we pray, we believe that Christ hears us as we'll talk about today, that he's the intercessor. When we go to the Lord's table, when we come to the Eucharist and we receive, it is not just a remembering. It is not just a rote going through the practice. We believe that Jesus Christ in a holy mystery by the power of the spirit can really be with us when we gather together. Scripture says that when two or more are gathered together in my name, there I'll be. We love that line, but do we believe it? 
when Jesus ascends, he also descends back to us everywhere and always. So in our struggles, there Christ will be. We're saying that today. So in our victories, there Christ will be by the power of his spirit. So the first fact of ascension is knowing that to be with God, to be back in his glory is also to be even more fully present with us. Secondly, the ascension now gives him all power and authority. As he's leaving in Matthew's gospel, like literally his last words to the disciples are, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'm sending you out in that word. It is all about power. The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And it's referenced constantly in terms of Jesus. Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is power. This thought right here is a prophetic vision. Some think the New Testament authors talk about it. Like David is prophetically seeing the father talk to the son, that there will come a day when the son will rule over all and his ascension is bringing to be this Psalm 110. So now his power and authority is restored, maybe even surpassed by way of his victory over sin, evil, and death in the cross and resurrection. Jesus is not only limited in his omniscience, and, but he is also limited in his omnipotence when he comes in the flesh. But when he's restored, he is all powerful again. That's what we believe as Christians, that he's gone to the right hand of God the Father. That's all about power not sitting on God's right hand. There's a million places I could show you this, but here's one example. In Exodus 15, the writer says, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. This doesn't mean that God literally backhanded the bad guys in Exodus, right? This means that he has power and his power extends to the world. So when the New Testament first Christians say, he, Jesus is now at the right hand, he is the extension of this salvation in the world. It means simply that Jesus is king, that he's king of kings. Jesus's position is about the full crowning of Jesus as king. As Jesus is crucified, in most of the gospels, they show this mocking of Jesus as he's clothed in purple royalty, as he's crowned with a crown of thorns. They mock him and call him king of the Jews. But what happens as he's brought into the glory of the father is he's brought to be king of all. And the irony is they didn't get even a slice of what was happening right in front of them. This is known to the church as the session of the son. This is what the son is doing now. He is ruling as king. This is what he's doing right now. Matthew Bates puts it this way. Jesus's reign is a non-negotiable portion of the good news. First, when the gospel is presented today by a preacher or teacher, most of the time, Jesus's reign is a portion of the gospel that's either entirely absent or mentioned as an aside. The cross and resurrection gets central billing, but Jesus's kingship is tucked away off stage. We need to recover Jesus's kingship as a central, non-negotiable constituent of the gospel. Jesus's 
reign as Lord over heaven and earth fundamentally determines what it means to have a saving faith or a allegiance to God. Jesus as King is the primary object to which our faith is given, that our saving allegiance is directed. Jesus reigns right now. Secondly, Jesus's reign corresponds to the present epoch of world history that we find ourselves in. The first six stages of the gospel reveal to what happened in the past that Jesus's life story, for example, he's already taken on human flesh. He's already died for our sins. He's already been raised from the dead. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then where is he now and what is he doing? It shouldn't surprise us if the answer to that question is fundamental to all aspects of our Christian life. Jesus is currently the enthroned king. He is currently the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is actively ruling, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, until he has all enemies as his footstool. There's two things I want you to see here. Maybe to challenge us a little bit is the first thing, if all of this is true, then we are citizens of another kingdom. If he is king, if we are followers of him, then we are citizens of heaven, as scripture puts it. Our allegiance is to this kingdom and to this king above all. There is narratives in this world that says that's oppressive and I don't got time for that because what we believe is this king is good and he's true and he's come for the redemption of the world and thereby giving him our allegiance is not oppressive, but it's abundant life. But here's the thing. I was talking with a, a friend of mine. I was at church camp, a dear friend of ministry. And he was asking me a question. What's the big challenges that you face in your ministry context right now? And I think that this might be the biggest challenge that we face in East Texas Bible Belt is that we may not wake up tomorrow and say, I put my allegiance here or there, but we function like we put our allegiance in all these other places before we do the king. This means that before partisan politics, before any politician, before any single issue, our allegiance is to the one who's conquered all. We follow Jesus the King. And I think this might be the biggest challenge maybe for those of us that have grown up in church. Y'all, we are being discipled every hour of the week by everything else except for our one hour at church. When we turn on the news, it doesn't matter what channel you turn it on, we are being told just shadows of truth we are being sold agendas. We are being formed by all of these other liturgies in our life. And we try to get rid of all of that in 50 minutes on Sunday morning. And what, what I want you to know here is the big challenge for us is that we have to have the mind of Christ, that to engage in a world where there is no truth anymore and it's only up to someone else's opinion, we have to be able to think Christianly in the world. But we will never do that if our allegiances are spread across the whole spectrum. The second thing I want you to see here is that his reign is actually through all of the called out ones. Jesus says later on in John's gospel, you will do greater works than I. How could he say that? 
He is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus the Christ. This is the one who told dead people to stop being dead. How can we do greater things than him? Because in his return, in his ascension, he now has authority over all heaven and earth and thereby he gives his spirit to all of us so that his reign might go into all places of the world. So the reign of Christ is now sent everywhere. It's not because we get to do a magnitude, something better than bringing people back from the dead. It's because there's more of us and more of him in the world. That's what I want you to see about what it means to be in Christ's kingdom. It's about power and authority and we should be walking in it. And third, the ascension solidifies his posture as intercessor. Jesus is also standing in the gap. He is our great intercessor. In his bodily resurrection, he is physically and positionally the one who brings us to God. We are, this is radical. We are in community with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because Jesus brings us there. That's what scripture tells us. That makes your brain hurt, it should, but it also should blow open your imagination. That we, when we, especially when we gather as a body, we are in fellowship with the one who created everything. Look at where it says in scripture in Romans, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And here in Hebrews, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See friends, the one who was with us is now completely for us. The one who is now again everywhere and all powerful is also the one who is completely for us in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The weight of this statement would require serious unpacking on what it means that he is our great intercessor. We would have to go into Levitical law and the role of priests in Israel. For your sanity, you're welcome. We won't unpack it fully, but I wanna say a few things about this. For now, the Levite priest in the history of Israel were set apart. They were a tribe of Israel set apart that they would lead the people in sacrifices in worship. They were the ones who would bring atonement for sin and brokenness before God. They were our go-between. And specifically, there was a high priest in the line of Moses and Aaron that he was the only one on one day of the year that could venture into the Holy of Holies, which was the most direct place of God's presence among his people. And what scripture tells us is that Jesus replaces this. He becomes the great intercessor that doesn't have to wait for a certain day of the year, but he thereby abides in that place for all time, always interceding on our behalf, always being our way to God. What does this mean? It means that Jesus hears your prayers, friends. That when you pray, you should believe that Jesus hears them that he is the one contending for us. We talk a lot about what he did for 30 years, but what has he been doing for 2000 years? He's been bringing you before the father. He's been contending for your struggles. He's been contending for those things that you face. He's been loving us fully. He is the one who meets us in the Lord's Supper. He is the one who meets us when we gather in worship. And it is by him that we are brought into the community of the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about being baptized into him. That's what it means. To be buried and to be raised to life in Jesus Christ is to be brought in the fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let's look at these threes again. Jesus is in the Holy of Holies for all time. His presence is with God, thereby God's presence is again fully with us everywhere and always. He is at the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him and he is standing in the gap for you and for the church, contending on our behalf. That is his posture. Let me close with this thought. This changes everything for us. If Christ is the king, it crosses, it cuts across everything that we do as Christians. It changes discipleship. It changes how we raise families. It changes mission. It changes evangelism. And take evangelism, for example. This week, I was interviewed by a researcher that is trying to see how seminaries are doing and educating pastors in evangelism. So we had these conversations that brought these things to my mind. And one of the things that came out of this conversation is oftentimes the church thinks that evangelism is just trying to help someone make a decision for Jesus. And that's it. And we can talk about the history of Christianity over the last three decades and some of the stuff that came by that, that you come down, pray a sinner's prayer, we applaud for a couple minutes and then you go on about your business, right? We got another one. Let's count them and turn it in to the denomination. That's what we think about as evangelism. And that's not what evangelism is if we believe that we are citizens of heaven, that we are Christ's people under the kingdom of Christ. Too often, we boil it down to something small. Here's the analogy. If that's the case, helping someone make a a decision, then it would be like us on a lifeboat going through the ocean and we see someone drowning and we throw them a lifesaver, like just something to float on. And we say, you're welcome, good luck. And we keep going. That's how we operate, that that's like evangelism and that's not the case. Brian Stone puts it this way, evangelism is much more than that. Evangelism is to offer Christ, to offer the reign of God proclaimed by Christ, present in him and offered to the world in his life, death and resurrection. The church offers Christ by telling his story, by embodying the story in its worship, ministry, and obedience. And while this offer has experiential and cognitive realities, it is not about just having people have an experience of God. The invitation, as Stone puts it, is to invite people to a peoplehood, to live like those that are citizens of another kingdom and to give the invitation so that others might join you in the way. So here's what that would look like. We are on a lifeboat and we are going through the ocean and instead of just throwing a life device to someone, we give them our hand and invite them onto the ship so that they might join us in this journey. Let me give you a real life example for me. I've shared parts of my story that I was without Christ. I didn't know him. Waiting tables in College Station on house arrest from this really great stage of my life and just dealing with all the awkwardness and in walks someone from my church and sits in my section and begins to love me and begins to ask me questions. But listen, what she didn't do was say, hey, do you know that you're a sinner and you're in need of God's grace? If you'll just accept Jesus into your heart, then everything will be okay. And let me close out my bill and then go on my way. But what she did 
was she invited me to be a part of a community that was living in the kingdom of God. Was it broken and messy? Absolutely. Was it perfect? No way. But they took me on and had me start volunteering with kids. By the way, we're not gonna ask for volunteers that are on house arrest to love your children. It's not the best model for ministry. But over weeks and months of living in a community of faith that believed that Christ was the king, I think God slow cooked me. And I woke up one day, I'm like, shoot, I think I'm a Christian, right? What do I do now? If we believe that Christ is the king, then we will live like citizens of heaven every single day in the community. Listen, I love about Mission Week last week, over 380 people came together from multiple churches to live as citizens of heaven here in the community. By the way, if there's that many churches together, we should have like a thousand people. We'll talk about that later. But here's what I want you to know today. We don't have to wait for Missions Week. We can live by the way that we love our kids, by the way that we love our neighbors, by the way that we vacation, by the way that we spend our money, by the way that we walk about ourselves, by the way that we lead in businesses, by the way that we love our spouses, by the way that we love the stranger in the street. We can live into this citizenship now because we walk in the power and the authority that is there. The, the temptation for the church right now, post COVID, is to do a lot of church growth things. That we could have a lot of programs that we might lure people to be back here. And I want folks to come back to church. We want people that are on the margins, that are unsure, that have reshaped their lives. We want them to be back here. But here's what I want more than anything, that the people of Marvin would live under the kingship of Jesus. Because if we become those subversive citizens of that kingdom in the world, people will come in these doors. And they'll do it in a way that's much different than if we go about some program of trying to lure them here. If they begin to see that the way that we live our lives is different and full of hope and full of love and full of joy, even in the midst of suffering, then maybe our prayer of thy kingdom come might become a real reality for us here. My friends, Jesus is our King and his reign must be more than an hour on Sunday. His reign must be more than a week of missions a year. His reign should conquer all that we do in our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen.